hearts his sheep. A good shepherd hearts his sheep. The title, a double meaning on purpose. First, the heart. We often think of the heart as a symbol of love, right? It's been around for a long time. But when you think about that, when, when did that start, that the heart was a symbol of love? I was talking about that with my wife just this morning. She said, oh, it's just always been the case. It's because the heart is where things are, you know, your, your emotions and all that stuff. But just pretend you didn't already know that and you wanted to know what's the history of it, okay? It didn't start with little Cupid going around, the little uh, fairy, angel, whatever he is. But some think it goes all the way back to the Greeks, okay? B.C. times, before Christ, the wonderful false god Dionysius, okay? God of, the, of wine, the vine, all these different things. And with the vine having ivy on it, okay? And so pretend this ivy, because some ivy is heart-shaped, but I couldn't find an ivy that was heart-shaped, kind of pear, but pretend it's heart-shaped, and I'll pretend it's not poison ivy, because I hope it's not. But I don't think it, it wasn't leaves of three, so I just grabbed it. But, um, so anyway, but ivy associated with Dionysius, and he was also the god of love. So there started where the heart associated with love. Now, very pagan culture and so forth. But what so often happens is Christians, Christianity steps in and redeems something that's pagan and makes it good. So in the Middle Ages, what happened in the Middle Ages was that Christians stepped in and made use of God through Jesus, his heart of love for the people. And that's where it had that Christian redemptive factor that shows up in art, shows up in literature, and there throughout. So by the 1600s, when Valentine's Day, St. Valentine, when it comes about, the heart is the obvious choice uh, for the symbol of love. But secondly, I said there's a double meaning in that. Why do we say that a good shepherd hearts his sheep? And this gets at more the, the center of our message. And that's this, that a good shepherd, a shepherd has a heart for his people in all the possible meanings that that could have that we're going to see here in the passage. And we need to hear about what God means when he's looking into someone's heart, when he's looking to see, do they love God? Do they love others? Is that present in their heart? And we're going to get to that point. But as we start, we first look at Samuel. So we're going to hear a little bit about Samuel. So our first point, our first, we, we start here with Samuel, and it's, we see that Samuel is grieving. Samuel is grieving over Saul. After all the trouble that Saul has caused for Samuel, after all the times he's disobeyed, after all the times he's been rash and foolish, after all these times, Samuel still grieves over Saul's fa failure. He could have rejoiced. The thorn is finally out of my side. I can now lead God's people. I can make this to my own advantage. But no, he's grieving. He's mourning because this was the Lord's anointed. And he's down. So we see in Samuel a heart of submission, a true heart for God's people. 
Samuel grieves for the people because the king has been a failure. And he grieves for the king himself because he wanted the best for Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. He does not see this as an opportunity to just extend his own agenda. So the Lord steps in, though. He steps in. He says, Samuel, get up. Get going. I've got this one. I had this from the beginning. Even when they shouldn't have asked for a king, I'm still in control. But it's time for you to go. I will provide. And that word provide, ra'ah, shows up nine times in this passage. God is going to provide for his people, even when they don't deserve it. I will provide a king for you, and you will anoint him. Samuel, get going. But Lord, I'm going to get killed if I do this. I will get killed. For me to go from Ramah down to Bethlehem, I have to go by Gibeah, and that's where Saul is. And if I go there, tell him I'm going to crown another king, I don't think he's going to take that too well. Nor would the other people, if I tell them I'm going to crown another king, I'm going to get killed. You know, this is not quite due process, Lord. God says, get a heifer and go. Trust me. Since the Old Testament version of the New Testament, follow me, follow me. Or the Nike version of just do it, Samuel, go. So scene one closes. But what about us? What about us as we, as we apply this? When a fellow Christian falls, as Saul did with Samuel, do we mourn or do we mock? Do we grieve? Do we gossip? Do we exhort and encourage them? Get back in the race. Get back in the Bible. I mean, in the, uh, in the race. Or do we enjoy them going down? So God is providing direction for his people. He does it through Samuel, and he's going to do it through the king to, to come. They are his people. He will provide for them. He will provide for us. And we need to believe that. Simple point. God provides for his people. His people matter to him, and they should matter to us too. Old, young, black, white, Hispanic, African, poor, rich, love them. Be with other people. God does, so we should. Does that sound easy? Does that sound vague? That's okay because we're going to flesh this out more as we go and be more specific. Scene two, Samuel obeys. He arrives in Bethlehem, about 10 miles or so. Not a tremendous distance, but he's walking it, so it probably took better part of a day. He arrives there. His welcome is not that warm, but that's okay. These people come out trembling. Why are they trembling? Because this is God's word. This is the prophet coming to tell us God's word. The last two times we saw Samuel, there was a pronouncement of judgment. They are trembling. They respect God's word. The prophet speaks, speaks the word of the Lord. Could be blessing, could be punishment, could be life, could be death. They realize that. They honor God's word, unlike Saul. Illustration of that, many chapters later in the book of Kings, Joash, a king crowned at the ripe old age of seven. Joash becomes king, reigns for a little while, 
one of his priests goes out, happens to find the word of the Lord, the Bible, up until that point in time. And they realize, we have not been listening to this. We have not been following this. We're a mess. He tears his robes out of reverence for God's word. The same kind of thing these people had, reverence for God's word. And as a pastor, there's not much more encouraging than for knowing that God's people are having a true reverence, a true appreciation for his word, for prayer, engaging in God's word, not for their own personal agenda, but out of reverence for what God is communicating to them. Then we move into the key verse, verse 7. Key verse of this chapter could be the key verse of the whole book, the whole book. God looks on the heart. Samuel he sees the oldest son come before him, Eliab. If you're casting the part, you take somebody who's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Sloan in their prime. There they are. Up, oh, Samuel's ready to douse him in oil and anoint him right there. But he's about to make the same mistake that people had made with Saul. He's looking on the outside. God says, no. Man looks on the outside. I'm looking on the heart. Biblically speaking, the heart is the core of emotions, will, motives, reason, conscience, all that in the heart. The great reformer, Philip Melanthon, said this. He said, the will chooses what the heart desires and the mind justifies it. The will chooses what the heart desires and the mind justifies it. The heart drives it. The heart drives why we do, how we do, what we do. It convicts us, it convinces us, it drives us. Why does that matter? Man can't see it. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart. God can. So from an external standpoint, one can look like they have it all together. They might have the right car, the right clothes, the right looks, the right stuff. But Jesus saw plenty of that in the Pharisees. And he said, you are whitewashed tombs. You give me lip service, but your heart is far from me. Their heart was just plain hard. Thomas Watson said, a hard heart is the container, the receptacle for the devil. Said, God dwells in two places, in heaven and a humble heart. Likewise, Satan uh, with, uh, resides in two places, hell and a hard heart. I, I personally really admire people who have, a, who have a, a good garden, a good garden. And I like to talk, to about, talk with them about what they're growing, when they're growing, how they do it, and so forth. How they keep out the deer, the bugs, the insects, all that stuff. How do they protect their garden and make it grow well. Part of the reason is because I have the farthest thing from a green thumb. Okay? I'd have to confess, the reason I'm slack, I don't cultivate that garden well. I don't get the good soil, and I don't keep out the weeds. See, the garden is like the heart. The garden is like the heart. You have to keep weeding it. For the weeds of sin, like pride, Jealousy, laziness, slothfulness. You need the rake of repentance, the trowel of prayer, 
the spade of humility. The heart is like a garden. Another thing about the heart, if you're like me, I often think about God viewing our heart in a judgmental ways that I don't want him to see it because he's just going to come in judgment. He's just going to come in judgment. After all, Proverbs 20 challenges us. Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Who can say that apart from Christ? Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Again, the point. Apart from Christ, our heart has no hope. But when the heart is regenerated, when the heart is regenerated, God does not come just in judgment. He comes to bless, not curse. Chronicles says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Blameless, not saying sinless, not saying if you're blameless, you're without sin. Nobody would be blameless except Christ. But he does mean free from sinful habits or behaviors without repentance. So upon sinning, the blameless heart desires to repent. After all, David was one of the biggest sinners ever. But when he's confronted, he's broken, he repents. So after going through all the brothers, all seven of the brothers, Samuel says, is there not somebody else? Yeah, just a little shepherd boy. Enter stage right. Here comes David. David, the one who has inspired more art in the history of the world, possibly, apart from Jesus. David the worshiper, David the poet, David the psalmist, David the warrior, David the mighty king with all his mighty men, here he comes, little ordinary shepherd boy. Little ordinary David. So the heart that God sees in David was one, not that was sinless, again, he sinned greatly, not sinless, but submissive to the Lord. So David was out with the sheep. Let's think about that. Good shepherd would be out with the sheep. Think about those, those sheep. Sheep aren't the most glamorous animals or pets. They're not the most intelligent pets. By nature, they're very social creatures. They like to be together in groups. Why? Because they're little scaredy cats. They're always scared of something. Something's after us. Let's huddle up. They can't even walk a straight line, basically. Their paths go all over the place because they're looking. What's after us? We may be in danger. Hence, they're just a bunch of followers. The quote, like a sheep led to slaughter because they follow each other along to slaughter. Even if one goes off a cliff, it's said that the others would follow. They just follow along. Hence, they need a shepherd to look after him. Sheep need a shepherd. This isn't a glamorous job that David has. He's a servant shepherd. He's the same in private as he is in public and vice versa. A shepherd wakes up in the morning thinking what? How are my sheep? How are my sheep doing? I'm going to take care of them in ordinary ways. 
I'm going to take care of my sheep. It's just good old-fashioned, compassionate grunt work. So application, are we shepherds? It's not saying we need to be just what David was, but in our little realms, how are we doing as being shepherds? For an elder or deacon, that can mean, where are my sheep? Who are the people that I'm looking after? Let me care for them. How are you doing? If an elder speaks into your life, receive that. Sometimes they have to pry a little bit, but it's for your good. It's out of love. They're being a shepherd. For the mother, doing the dishes, cooking the meals, helping her children with schoolwork, and doing it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Quite ordinary, but those are her sheep. Could be a youth, could be a young person. Wake up in the morning, how are my friends? How can I care for my friends? How can I care for my friend who's suffering, who's cutting herself? How can I reach out and encourage and rescue her? I can be a shepherd. For the life group leader, how is my group doing? How can I help them with their devotionals? How can I help them to share the gospel? How can I help them to reach out and be compassionate? How can they do that? They are a shepherd. The father, how is my wife doing? How, is my ch- how are my children doing? Simple, ordinary things, but the work of a shepherd. They're basic, they're simple, they're not easy. God said, you're faithful in little, you're entrusted with more. God wants us to be faithful in the little things. The Statue of Liberty, uh, Roger Hammerstein, one point saw a picture of the Statue of Liberty. Up on top, he sees that the part that nobody should have ever seen because when they constructed it, it was long before the time of airplanes and, and helicopters and so forth, but he notices in the picture Her hair is perfect. It's put up perfectly. The crown's perfect up there in a part that nobody would ever see. So that's the point. The person constructing the Statue of Liberty, Lady Liberty, was aware, I'm going to do my best in the ordinary, even if nobody sees it. A shepherd is doing an ordinary job, but an important ordinary job that somebody might never see, might never know about, except God who looks on the heart. God is looking on the heart. So to summarize that point, we see that God provides, the Lord provides again. He provides leaders, and he provides leaders who give direction to his people. Moving to the final scene, God provides abilities to his leaders who give direction to his people. And so we're in this odd place of transition Saul's moving out, but that's going to take a long time, several more chapters. David's moving in. He's been anointed, but not really taking on the kingship just yet. The Spirit comes upon David. This Holy Spirit comes upon David, and the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. But worse than that, Saul doesn't just get left by the Holy Spirit. It's replaced by a troubling spirit, a calamitous spirit, a misery type of spirit. Some translations say evil, but better translation is harmful, that kind of thing. God's not the author of evil, but he does send 
as in Judges 9, this spirit, as in another place, to do somehow his work. Okay? So we're not apologizing. God is sovereign. One of the points is here, if somebody becomes so rebellious against God like Saul did, if they turn their back that far, God is now against them. We should never want to be in that place where God is against us. Saul's servant realized that. He knew where this spirit was coming from. He was saying, this trouble is from the Lord. Somehow, God in his sovereignty approves of this, uses it for good. So David, though, in the meantime, he's the anointed. And there's a purpose to that. It's not just so that he can have this honor, be a figurehead type of king. The kingship is going to come in due time. But in the meantime, God's going to work in David's life. He's going to help him to be a servant. He's still working with the sheep. He's going to have a glorious battle in the next chapter with Goliath. And then he's going to wait. And he's going to wait and wonder why in the world Saul keep chasing me when I do him good because God is molding David into who he wants him to be. So we see that God gifts David as one of his leaders with some qualities in the midst of this. He's going to help him be compassionate. He's going to help him be patient. He's going to learn to love someone who is quite, quite unlovable in Saul. He plays the lyre. He comforts Saul when the Spirit comes upon him. You feel like you might have it rough at times with a boss who's, who's quite the tyrant. At least your boss isn't chunking spears at you in a schizophrenic rage. David, I love you. Chunk. Oh, David, I'm sorry. Chunk. There's another one. So you want, at least we don't have it that bad. David's learning patience and continuing to love and serve Saul in the midst of that. David somehow in the midst of that loved the Lord's anointed. C.S. Lewis said this, and, and spin this towards a marriage relationship, a mother-daughter, a father-son. He said this, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. David acts out the love, has a heart of love for Saul. So again, sure, God is not calling us, you, me, to be a king, but whatever he calls us to do, he will give us what is necessary to succeed. The movie, American Sniper, okay, the Kyle family, Chris Kyle. In the movie, there's a scene at the kitchen table where Chris Kyle is a young boy, his father's speaking to them. Before it goes to the kitchen table, the camera zooms in on a Bible, zoom right in, holy Bible, moves to the kitchen table, in a sense saying, here comes the gospel according to the Kyle family. The father says this, he says, boys, as the mother listens on, boys, there's three kinds of people in this world. They're the sheep, the wolves, the sheepdog. The sheep are relatively dumb. 
They don't even believe there's an evil in the world. And hence, they are quite in danger of the predators, the wolves. The wolves desire to kill, ravage, tear down, and destroy the sheep. But there are the few sons, there are the sheepdogs. They're blessed with the gift of aggression, an overpowering need to protect the flock. These men are the rare breed who live to confront the wolf, the sheepdog. Be one of them. The gospel according to the Kyles. Not the gospel of the Bible. Close, but it replaced the sheepdog instead of who? The good shepherd. Swap the sheepdog for the good shepherd. Now, wasn't that far off, though. Let's think about this. Many of the pictures we see of Jesus, he's gentle, holding that little lamb like a fluffy little dog. True, Jesus can be as gentle, as kind, as compassionate as any. He is the Lord. He is perfect in compassion. However, our Lord the good shepherd, who looked very ordinary. He was also quite strong. He went to the ends of the earth, or goes to the ends of the earth, to claim his people. When people were not worshiping right in his father's house, he tears it apart. He could be quite strong in that way. He will tear down false kings, and he will never lose hold of those who are his own, like the good shepherd. He will never lose them. Why? Because he gave his life. His blood pays for it all. That is our good shepherd, and that is the gospel. We have that strong good shepherd who is our Savior, and this is the one who calls us this day to have hearts for him that are the same in private as they are in public. Not sinless, but submissive. Not perfect, but passionate. Not haughty and prideful, but humble. This is our good shepherd. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are Indeed, the good shepherd in every way as you define good. Sometimes it's hard for us as we suffer to see the good that you're bringing about, but we will trust in the same way that Samuel did when he couldn't see necessarily exactly what you're doing. You are bringing all things together for good. The one who is gentle as a lamb and strong as a lion. You are the one we worship. You are the one we pursue. You are the one who pursues us. In your name, amen. Stand with us so we can respond.